0: Oh, our God and Father, and never have we had a greater need to grasp your truth and be grasped by your truth as we find it in Scripture alone. We need so today, Father. We need the clarity and the truth, the stability and direction that only your word gives. So, we pray that you'll make us teachable and that you will teach us to your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, Amen. Show of hands, how many were here when I first preached in 2012? All right, that's not everybody. (laughs) I don't do the math, and I'm nearsighted enough not to be sure, but uh, we did a series, one of my first series, I think my first series was a series on the basics of the faith. And so every third. Sermon, every fourth sermon or so, we're going to return and revisit that series, preaching through the basics of biblical doctrine starting today. So, probably about three sermons in Matthew, and then one of these, three sermons in Matthew, and one of these, and so forth. You see the progression there. Today, we start looking at the question Doctrine, why bother? And our verse uh, as a springboard is Jude 3. It's in your outline there. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Notice Jude writes Christians at large. He's not writing pastors alone or seminary students, which didn't exist anyway, or Sunday school teachers or church officers. He simply writes those who are the called, the beloved of God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, which is 100% of all Christians. He writes 100% of all Christians and tells us all that his desire is that we all be ready to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered, handed down to the saints, but let me ask you this: What is that faith? What is the faith he speaks of that was once for all delivered? What verse has that? What passage, what chapter, what book in the Bible has that faith of which he speaks? And the answer, of course, is it's in all the Bible. To know that faith today, we need to look at all the Bible to see what God has said to us and what he wants us to believe. So that's what we're going to be doing in this series, looking to the Bible to learn about the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, not handed down to the pastors, not handed down to the laity, simply handed down to the saints. Uh, and if you apply yourself, if you listen, you learn, you review, understand what we're teaching here, you're going to be able to say not primarily, what does my church believe? And not primarily, uh, what my, does my pastor believe? Though you will be able to answer those questions as well. You will primarily be able to say, what does the Bible teach? And let me show you where it teaches it. That's what this service, that's what this series is devoted to. So. The critical truth is the way we do this, and the only way we can do this, is by comparing Scripture with Scripture to see what the whole of Scripture says, to see what the doctrine is that the Bible presents to us. Doctrine is simply another word for teaching. So, what is the doctrine? What is the Bible, the teaching that the Bible presents? But we begin with a more fundamental question, which is why bother? So let's go through that. Beginning with Roman numeral one, we're going to be asking and answering three questions with little uh, sub questions snuck in. Uh, beginning with Roman numeral one, we need to ask is it desirable? In other words, is it a good thing to bother with doctrine? And before I answer that question, I ask the question, why ask the question? (laughs) That's what letter A is about. Why do I have to ask that? Why do I have to ask the question of whether it's desirable to know Bible doctrine? Well, because some fundamental Christians would say, well, you shouldn't preach doctrine. Just preach through books of the Bible. Don't systematize. Just go verse by verse, and that's the only way to do it. Now, let me tell you as an aside that no prophet, no speaker, no preacher in Scripture ever did that obviously I believe in that. I do that. I think it's a good thing. I think it should be the fundamental thing we do. But to say that that's the only thing, and that it's not valid to combine Scripture to see biblical doctrine, well, every prophet, every writer, every apostle did that, and our Lord Jesus did that. So yes, we should do that. But I get a little ahead of myself. Some of the ways people would oppose even talking about doctrine, let alone studying it, they'd say doctrine divides Love unites. Now we see how well that works out today. We've been told that, uh, that in the name of love, we should require everybody to get vaccines and wear masks. That's what love requires. Or in love, we should approve of homosexual unions. The way a Christian shows love is by turning up at, at gay mirages, gay weddings, quote-unquote, and that's showing love. Well, is that showing love? Well, that hasn't served to unite us very much. We need to know what we're supposed to love and what we're supposed to hate. But people say doctrine divides, love unites. Doctrine divides, experience unites. Uh, Particularly back in the 60s and beyond when um, charismatic movement arose in evangelicalism and at the same time it arose in Roman Catholicism. And so charismatics in both parties were joined by their common experience of tongues. I read a scholar who said her baptism in the Holy Spirit made her revere Mary all the more. So their experience united them. But of course, you have to ask the fundamental question, is their experience based on truth or not? That's not so easy a solution after all when you think about it. Doctrine divides, experience unites. Some people say, well, I don't want doctrine. I want Jesus. Amen, I want Jesus too. Tell me about this Jesus that you want. You know, if you went out in Texas and asked 10 people if they believed in Jesus, you might very well get 10 people saying, yes, they believe in Jesus. But then ask, who is this Jesus they believe in? And what impact has he had on their lives? And you may find out very shortly that none of those 10 who believe in Jesus actually believe in Jesus. And yet that's the way people oppose doctrine. Or they'll say, I don't want to bother with doctrine. Just give me something practical. You don't care if it's based on truth or not? Well, that is the great American thing, though pragmatism doesn't work. But I think we've found that not caring about truth actually doesn't work very well, ironically enough. Yet that's what some people would say. And finally, some people say, well, doctrine doesn't really matter. I just want to see zeal. I just want to see sincerity. You know, like when politician says sincerity is the most important thing. If you can fake that, you've got it made. But sincere about what? Is being sincere and zealous about a lie a good thing? That's what doctrine is all about. Doctrine is all about stating the truth that the Bible teaches. So that is why we even ask the question, uh, is it desirable? Many would say, no, it's not desirable. Well, the answer, letter B, the answer that we find in the Bible is evidently so. Evidently so, evidently it is desirable. And we see that in the Bible. turn with me to Psalm 19. We just read Psalm 19. Turn there for a second if you would. The first half of the psalm is about God's glory in creation. The second is about His revelation in His Word. And we read in verse 10, They are more desirable than gold. Even, much more, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now just think about that, that vivid word picture. Gold is very, very valuable. It now is very, very valuable. And yet he says they are more to be desired than gold. We should want them more than we want gold. And not is it just desirable because it's profitable. It's desirable because it's delightful. It's like honey. It's something sweet that gives happiness and delight and is pleasant to the palate. But of course, the question is, what they what? (laughs) What is the they that he's talking about? Well, we just read it a few moments ago. If you look at the context, what is the they? Verse 7 says, they are the law of Yahweh, His authoritative teaching and the testimony of Yahweh, what he himself swears he knows to be true. Verse 8, the precepts of Yahweh and the commandments of Yahweh, his authoritative lordly commands, for how we live our lives, what we do and don't do. That's what they are. And they are, verse 9, the fear of Yahweh and the judgments of Yahweh, his courtroom decisions and directives, and the worship of him and humility. Those are the things that are more desirable than gold. But those are a bunch of things their laws, their precepts, their commandments. How they are desirable is you put them together. You synthesize them, you see what they unite to say, and what do you have when you do that? You have doctrine. You have teaching, you have statements of truth. Now, we need doctrine in order to have faith. What do we call our religion? We call it the Christian faith, because it is about faith. And faith, I remind you, is not a feeling. Faith may produce feelings, faith does produce feelings, but faith is not a feeling. Faith is a conviction about statements of truth. Faith needs facts to rest on. Faith needs statements of truth to rest on. Where do we get those statements of truth to rest our faith on? We get them in the words of God, which we combine to make doctrine, to produce doctrine, what the Bible teaches. So the faith that's the substance of things hoped for rests on the doctrine that we get when we put together the Word of God and see what it says about anything and about everything. It's sweet and it's desirable to put the Word together, to yearn for it, to learn it, to cherish it, to believe it, to live in it. That's sweet, that's desirable. Yes, indeed, evidently it is desirable to bother with doctrine. And Psalm 119. One, you can, uh, well, you might as well turn there. We're in the Psalms. You're nearby. You're in the neighborhood. Why not drop in? Psalm 119. We will not be reading the whole Psalm, but you could spend your time a whole lot worse. It's a wonderful Psalm, uh, all about the Word of God. But just start with the first verse. How blessed are those whose way is blameless. Who, who walk in the law of Yahweh. And just pick out some of these words. First of all, blessed. Ashrei. It means, oh, the blessings of. Oh, the happinesses of. Oh, how great for. He's saying that this is a happy way to be. This is a great and glorious way to be. To be this person. And who, who is this person? He's the person whose way is blameless. And how do you have that kind of way? You walk in the law of Yahweh. But what does it mean by way? Well, that's your, your life. That's how you and I live. That's the way we walk. Blameless is an interesting word. It literally, we need a, an adjective form of integrity, but we don't have one. Integritus. we need that word. But to have integrity, and that's what this word means, to be of one piece. And what do you see today? What is the world produced in the minds of the children and, and the worldlings of our day? Fragmentation, chaos, Insanity. They're all about women's rights, but they can't tell us what a woman is. Now, how do you get more fragmented than that? But that's what the world does. The person who walks in the law of God is not fragmented. He's holy, has integrity, because he's based on something smarter and deeper and and infinite in its wisdom. uh, The the word of God, the law of God, he says. Now, that word law is one of the few Hebrew words everybody knows, Torah, Torah. But Torah doesn't just mean like a law, stop at red lights. It means the law, the instruction, the the whole of the Old Testament revelation. It's an authoritative direction to us. Yes, it contains individual laws, but it's more than just individual law. I mean, notice here that it's in the singular. It doesn't just say walk in the laws of Yahweh, but in the whole. Now, how do you have a whole when there are so many particulars? You've got to synthesize them. You've got to put them together. And what do you have when you synthesize them? You have doctrine. That's what doctrine is. That's what a systematic theology is. Putting together the words of God on any given subject. So we need that because we need to walk in that. So to do that, I have to understand the individual passages and words. Yes, I do. But I also need to see how they relate to each other. How dead and trespasses and sins relates to made alive together in Christ and being saved by grace through faith. How do these things fit together? That's how we get the system of biblical doctrine. So only in that way do we have the biblical doctrine of the nature of God, the biblical doctrine of the nature of man, of the nature of sin, of the way of salvation, of the way to live, only by putting together the words of God and saying what they say together. So Let's return to the question we're considering. Is it desirable to be happy? I think we'd agree. Yes, it is desirable to be happy. Well, this verse tells us the way to be happy is to put God's word together and walk in what it teaches us, in the whole teaching of the word of God. Walk in its doctrine. You say, oh, that's Old Testament. I don't think anybody here would say that, but some fictional person at least would. That's Old Testament. Now we just walk in the Holy Spirit. Well, then, I'm so glad you brought that up. What did the brand-new, Holy Spirit-created, Holy Spirit-filled church do? Turn to Acts 2.42. Some of you are just so smart, you already know what this says, and you're thinking about lunch. Come back, come back, stay with me. Look at Acts 2.42. Now, what did these brand-new Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, just saw speaking in tongues and all that stuff, what did they do? What did they spend their time doing? They were continually, well, they spent a lot of time doing it, devoting themselves. Well, they were wholehearted about it. Yikes, they were over the wall on this to the apostles' teaching. Apostles' doctrine would be just as good a translation because doctrine is simply teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and everything that follows grows out of that which produces fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what did the apostles teach? Well, judging by the epistles, what they taught was the Old Testament and the New Testament. They taught the words of Jesus. They taught the words of the Old Testament. And they taught what the Spirit of God gave them directly. They taught doctrine. They put together the Word of God and added to it so as to finish it. And now we have it finished. That presents the doctrine of God. It puts together The new Spirit-created, Spirit-filled church spent itself in doctrine continually, we see here. So, is it desirable to bother with doctrine? Evidently so, because, letter C, I'll just give four reasons out of 400 gazillion. So here's the first four reasons out of 400 gazillion. The first reason it's desirable because it alone truly reveals God's acts and heart. It alone truly reveals God's acts and heart, what He does and who He is inside of Himself. You don't have to go any further to see an example of that than the first book of the Bible. You probably bet yourself that we'd end up here sooner or later, and yep, you win that bet. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, creation testifies to the truth of that, but we wouldn't know all of that just by looking at it. We wouldn't know how many gods did it. We wouldn't know... Uh, lots of things, but this verse tells us what God in fact did. Then in the beginning it was He who created everything. Heavens and earth is an expression kind of meaning everything. I mean the heavens and the earth, that's everything in the created universe. And He created everything at the beginning. So now we know this act of God by reading the first verse of the Bible. But look at the fourth verse of the Bible. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, we wouldn't have known that by looking at creation. Scripture reveals that to us. What he did, but what's more, it doesn't just show us what God did. What does it show us? What he thought. He looked at it, and he saw it as good. So Scripture shows us the acts of God, but it also takes us into the heart of God and and shows us what he thought about his creation. Is that of personal interest? I dare say it is. It's it's the thing that we're completely missing in our world today. Verses 26 through 28. We're not going to review them, but, but you know, they tell us why God created man and what man was as created by God and what God created man for. It answers the question, who am I and what am I here for? There's the answer right there we wouldn't know that by looking at rocks and sunsets and and surf we need to look into god's word for that and see the doctrine that it teaches us about man and then finally the last verse of the chapter god saw all that he had made and behold it was very good so again taking us into the thoughts of god the delight of god in his own creation and teaching us that we look around and see we see all the sin and misery and say how could a god create how could a good god create all this Well, this isn't what a good God created. Good God created something very good. Something else accounts for the way things are. But that's another doctrine that we get from Scripture alone. The explanation for why we are where we are. But I digress. So a wonderful place that puts this together is Psalm 105. So turn back there with me for a moment, would you please? Psalm 105, right around the middle of your Bible. And we see how this doctrine comes together in uh, worship and celebration of God. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, we read. Call upon his name. Now, name means more than just the the unit of speech, Yahweh, it's shorthand for everything he is. It's the compendium of who He is and what He's done. That's all Yahweh. When you say Yahweh, we're supposed to think of the God of Scripture. We're supposed to think of creation, the Exodus, the Passover. We're supposed to think of the giving of the law and the mighty acts of God and the laws of God, the words of God. Call upon His name. Make known His acts among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Muse on all his wondrous deeds. Boast in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek Yahweh be glad. Inquire of Yahweh. That means study him. Make him your study and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wondrous deeds, which he has done, his miracles and the judgments uttered by his mouth. And all of this is what it is to look at all of Scripture, see what God has done, see what God has said, and put it together so that we know who God is, so that we can worship Him, so that we can call on His name. No one word or verse says everything about His name. It's the all of God's Word that reveals His name to us. And for us to know His name, we need to put it together. And you put it together. Uh, and you get doctrine. You get the teaching of Scripture. So, we asked, do, is it good to desire to be happy? Now I ask the question, is it good to desire to know God? Well, indeed, it's very good to desire to know God. And if we want to know God, we've got to know what His Word teaches. We've got to learn the verses, the words. We've got to put them together and see what they say. And what we end up is the doctrine of God. And by that, we know God. That's where He reveals Himself. Now, a little aside here that's, that's very contemporary and very important to understand. If you want, if somebody says, uh, how do you know God? I would say, you know God as he reveals himself in his word. So one might ask, well, is it most important to know God? And I would say, absolutely, to know God as he reveals himself in his word. So is it most important to know his word? Yes, because in his word, God reveals himself. And you say, wait a minute, which one of those is most important? Oh, I'll never agree to separate the two. Because that's where we find God. That's where he makes himself known. If you say, I'll meet you at Panera next Tuesday at 2, and I want to see you next Tuesday at 2, where will I be? I'll be at Panera, because that's where you said you'd meet me. Where does God meet us in his word? That's where he says he meets us. So is it important to know the Bible or to know God? False dichotomy. It's important to know God as He reveals Himself in the Bible. It's important to know the Bible because in there, we find God. We know God. So, a second reason it's desirable is because it alone truly reveals our sin. Romans 3. I'm going to go there. Not deep, but we're going to take a look there. Romans 3, verses 9-19. through 19. All doctrinal roads lead to Romans And they start from Romans as well. You can get anywhere from Romans. Romans 3, verse 9. What then, are we better? (laughs) Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that's everybody, are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And then if you're in a New American Standard or an LSB, you see a bunch of capital letters. What do the capital letters mean? It means he's quoting from the Old Testament. In fact, what he does is he quotes from five different Old Testament passages and puts them together to say what we are. And what we are is completely lost and hopeless in sin. And so he concludes, uh, whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law that every mouth may be shut and all the world become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Only the Word of God reveals our sin. We have a nagging feeling all our lives that we're guilty in some way, but we don't know the specifics by comparing ourselves with other people or with contemporary psychology, which is always changing. Twenty years ago, homosexuality was abnormal. Today, it is optimal Christian living, uh, according to, homo- uh, to uh, uh, Balian, but to psychologists, I was going to say. Psychology is always changing. We don't find out what our real problem is, the real analysis of what our real problem is until we look at Scripture. Scripture tells us what it is. It reveals our sin. It reveals God's holiness and us in the light of God's holiness. And that's where we see our sin. So is it desirable to know what we really need? I dare say yes. It's desirable to know what we really need. Not be looking around in all the wrong places to solve problems that aren't the real problem. Well, if we're going to do that, we've got to go to the Bible and its doctrine of man, its doctrine of God, its doctrine of sin, its doctrine of salvation. That's the only way to understand and see the solution to man's real and deepest needs. So there's a second reason it alone truly reveals our sin, a third reason it alone truly reveals the Savior. It alone truly reveals the Savior. We're going to be in Romans. I'll just uh, point out Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 1 starts out, the the generation of Jesus the Messiah. The Bible reveals Jesus to us. We see things about Him in history and in in non-biblical writings, but really, to know who He is and what He did... We've got to look to Scripture and particularly to look to Him in a saving way. We've got to look through Scripture. Dreams won't do it. Experiences, visions won't do it. Turn to Romans chapter 10 with me for a moment and I'll show you exactly this. In so many words... So you see, you get all in one what our church believes, what our pastor believes, and what the Bible says, because to the best of our effort, we try to make them all the same thing. (laughs) Romans chapter 10, starting with verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fantastic. So we just go out on the street and get people to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Well, there's more to it than that. Paul asked the question, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? I've got to tell you honestly, as I've seen some YouTube uh, examples of evangelism, I've cringed a bit at how quickly often an evangelist wants to move from his first couple of questions to getting them to pray to receive Christ. And I'm thinking he's just met this person. He doesn't know if that person knows anything about Jesus. But they think that you're saved by receiving Christ when Scripture most commonly says that we're saved by what? Believing Christ, through faith in Christ. And Paul asked the question how can you believe how can you call on him and who you've, him who hello how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed how will they believe in him who they have not heard how will they hear without a preacher and he talks about that for a moment and then he says he concludes in verse 17 faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ like i said just a few minutes ago faith is not a feeling biblical saving faith rests on truths, on statements of truth, and those statements of truth come from Scripture. Faith comes by hearing Scripture, Scripture, the Word of Christ, the preaching of Christ. So, uh, do we desire to be saved? Do we desire to know and experience salvation? Is it a good thing to desire that? Well, it's a very good thing to desire that, well, if we want that then we 're going to have to learn doctrine. We simply will we 'll need to learn the teachings of the Bible about christ the the The, the fact that he is God incarnate, the fact that he in, as to his eternal nature is God. 100% God from all eternity unchanging the fact that he took on himself a 100% human nature for us and our salvation that he was born of the virgin that he fulfilled all righteousness that he bore the sins of his people on the cross and made full atonement that he was buried that he rose from the grave, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he makes intercession forever for all who draw near to God through him, where do I learn those things? Just one place, scripture. but what did I just do? I just put together a bunch of scriptures didn 't I I just just quoted you fragments of a bunch of Christ, a bunch of scriptures that 's what doctrine is it 's assembling scripture to see what it teaches about something, so we must assemble the scripture. To see who Christ is, to see what it teaches about Christ, in whom to know aright is eternal life. So, it alone truly reveals the Savior, and fourth, it alone truly reveals God's will. If I have seen who God is, I've been convicted of my sin, I've been shown the truth of Christ, and I repent and believe in Him, now I want to know. How do I live? <laughs> what do I do now? I remember very vividly when the Lord saved me at age 17. It, it uh, saved my soul forever, but completely trashed every plan I had for my life. Everything I was going to do was unoperable. <laughs> and It was no longer doable. And I went to a teacher of mine who I knew was also a pastor, and I said, what do I do now? <laughs> what do I do now? I know I read the Bible and I go to church, but what do I do with my life? And that's what we're talking about now. Only the Bible tells us the answer to that question. Jesus prays in John 17:17, 17, 17, short verse but very deep. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now what does sanctify mean? At root it means to be set apart to God's ownership and service. So it is this prayer for sanctification cover Well, it covers positional sanctification by which we are set apart from the world to the family of God. But it also covers the whole of conditional sanctification, progressive sanctification, by which we grow day by day into the likeness of Jesus Christ, which ultimately consummates in perfect sanctification in the presence of Christ. But Jesus says that this is done by your word and your word is truth. Well, which word is truth? Gold? That's in the Bible. Um, uh, Quail? That's in the Bible. Which word sanctifies us? You say, oh, that's a silly question. He doesn't mean just a unit of speech. No, he doesn't. What does he mean? The whole of God's word. Bible doctrine. The statement of what Scripture says. All of it put together into the statement of God's truth. Sanctify them by the whole of your word, your doctrine, your teaching. Your word is truth. So God does this by his word. Word means our whole Bible. Uh, The whole system of what it teaches is the means of our sanctification as it teaches us to think God's thoughts after him and not the way the world thinks. To make the choices that would please God, not the choices that would please the world. To go in the direction in which God calls us not the direction in which our flesh is inclined to go. You see, we only learn that from God's Word. And a great statement of that, again, is 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. I'll just summarize that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. That's the whole of life. How to think, where you're wrong, how to get right, how to live. It's all in the Word. And then he says uh, that, that... it is profitable to make the man of God fully equipped for every good work. So Paul says it's all there in Scripture, but of course, some assembly required. We need to learn all of what it says to see what it says on on a topic. So that's the question we're asking when we say, well, what does God say about marriage? What does God say about church? What does He say about politics? What are we asking, really? Well, we're asking what the whole teaching of Scripture is. On that, because that's the only way that we can answer that question. And so it is sufficient, and it's, so it's definitely desirable. So we've, I, think, I hope we've agreed that it's a good thing that we should want to know the doctrine of God. Roman numeral 2, let's ask the question now, is it possible? I mean, just the fact that it'd be a good thing doesn't mean we can do it. I think it'd be great if I could just click my heels together and fly anywhere I want, but I can't do it. (laughs) So is this something that would be nice to do, but we can't do? Why do I ask that question? Because a lot of people would say, we can't do that. You look at academics, and they approach the Bible that way. They don't talk about biblical theology in the sense of the whole Bible. Let's talk about Pauline theology or Petrine theology, the theology of the synoptics, the theology of John. And they see this as a bunch of separated things. And so uh, a thousand theologies perhaps in the Bible, as they tend to split up the books of the Old Testament, is not being by one person. There's two Isaiahs. No, there's three Isaiahs. There's One, two, no, three, four, five more uh, who authored the Pentateuch and on and on. And so these all have different theologies to them. So you can't even do Bible doctrine according to them. And then at the other end of the poll, there's some fundamentalists who would just say, well, I reject systematic theology altogether. That's just man-made. Doing that is man-made. Okay, well, if you believe that, then you can never say what the Bible says about anything. Because to do that, you're going to have to put together statements in the Bible on a subject to come up with a a statement of what God says on that issue. So that's why I ask, and my answer to the question, is it possible to know what the faith is, to know biblical doctrine? My answer, once again, is evidently so. And my evidence is 1 Corinthians 15. Evidently, it is possible to do it. Because Paul does it. <laughs> and every writer of scripture does it. Jesus does it. So, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. You see Paul's goal in verses 1 and 2, and they tell us uh, the stakes. I hope you're looking at there up. You, you turn when I say to turn, that you turn to those uh, verses. Uh, it tells us the stakes of knowing these things. Uh, if, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you as good news, unless you believe for nothing. So these things are statements for our faith, and we are saved in believing them. So if we don't receive them stand in them believe them we're not saved do the stakes get any higher they do not so understanding what this statement is and this statement is not just a single word or a single verse uh, but his goal here is to lay out this gospel this faith that they need to stand in, this word, this doctrine that they need to understand and not be moved away from. No matter what anybody says, they need to hold to this and stay there. That's how they're saved. So that's his goal. Now let's look at his way in verses 3 through 4. How does he do this? He says, for I delivered to you As of first importance, what I also received, that, number one, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, Christ died for our sins. There's the meaning of his death. Standing there, I could have told that he died. I could have known that. But to know why he died, where do I have to go? What does Paul say? The Scriptures. To know the meaning of his death. Well, which Scripture, though? Well, does he say Scripture? Scripture. He says scriptures, various scriptures put together, teach the meaning of Christ's death from Genesis to the end of the Bible, the end of the Old Testament, a contribute to teaching the meaning of Christ's death. So the scriptures and secondly, that he was buried. Thirdly, uh, buried. What's the significance of that? You say, well, that's that's really incidental. No, it's not. There were people who denied that Jesus physically died. He was just a spirit. Question, do you bury a spirit? No. If he was buried, then he was physically dead. And that's an important truth. Thirdly, that he was raised on the third day. Here we are again, according to the Scriptures. So, meaning of his death, died for our sins. Literal physical nature of his death, he was buried. Literal triumphal sequel to his death. Raised on the third day. Now again, I ask, which Scripture teaches each of these and Paul's answer, Paul says, Scriptures. Synthesizing Scriptures into the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of His death. The doctrine of His life. The doctrine of His nature. It takes all of God's Word to see what God says about this. So, evidently, yes, it is possible to teach doctrine. To teach what the Bible says. Because Paul does it right there. And Peter does it. What's the sermon on... on uh, Uh, in Acts, Acts chapter 2. What book of the Bible does he preach? No book of the Bible. He preaches from several places. Where does he go? He goes to Psalm 110. He goes to Psalm 16. He goes to 2 Samuel 7. He goes to Joel. He goes to several places and puts it together to preach Christ. And I'd say it was a rather successful sermon resulting in the conversion of thousands in the beginning of the Christian faith by the work of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, every sermon in the Bible does it this way. So it is possible to put together Scripture and know the doctrine of God, to know what the faith, once for all, handed down to the saints are. Why is it possible? Let us see. because of Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Because Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. What does that say? God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Be helpful if you're looking at that. So these two majestic verses, I mean, and this is one of the most amazing beginnings of any book ever written, I would say. These two verses take in the whole of Scripture. Scripture. The first verse takes in all 39 books of the Old Testament. God having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets. That's what that is. When did he do it? He did it long ago. How did he do it? He did it by the prophets. To whom? The fathers. By what means? Many portions in many ways, he says. But that's what the Old Testament is. It's God speaking. But it's not all of God speaking. You have to look at verse 2. In these last days spoke to us in his Son. Well, he doesn't say in many portions in many ways again, does he? <laughs> he speaks in one way. He speaks in Christ. And the, the, Hebrew, the Greek is very picturesque. In sun, he says literally, meaning the manner of his speaking is sun-wise. He speaks in the sun. His revelation is a Christ revelation. That's how he speaks to us. So the point of these two verses is that all the Bible is God speaking. It's one book. And so that's why it's, for instance, just to pull out an application. It's such nonsense to say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Yeah, he did. He said it back in Leviticus. What do you mean he said it back in Leviticus? God. Christ is God. What God says, God says. Each person of the Trinity speaks for God. God. Speaks for the whole Trinity. So yes, Jesus did say something about it back in Leviticus and in a number of other places. Jesus also said something about it in Romans 1. Wait a minute, you say Paul wrote that. Yeah, but Paul says, I write the command of Christ. So yeah, Jesus did. But you've got to see, as I heard somebody say it once, is very well put, that it's good to think of the Bible as one really really long sentence <laughs> one really really long sentence and to puck one part of it out and say I like this part and ignore the rest uh, you can't do that you can't do that, it's all one it's all God speaking it's all God speaking and so um, let's see, sorry uh, it's, it's, it's remarkable to think that we can do that, that we can say the Bible says, and God says, can you do that with any human area? Can you say, well, what, what has science always said? A million different things in any given week, you know, and on some subjects. But what, what do politicians say? A million different things in any given decade, any given... Well, what, is, what does humanity say on any given issue? Really, the only thing that they're united in saying is, we don't need God. We want to be as God. That's about the only thing they agree on. And after that, everything else is sheer chaos and madness. You can't do that with man, but you certainly can do it with the Bible because that is the word of the one God. And if we interpret each part of it according to the normal rules of language... The grammatical historical method that that words mean what they would have meant to the writer and the hearers in that context, in that time. You interpret it that way and it all fits together in the most amazing way. And that's why we're able to say God says, meaning the Bible says, meaning this is what the whole doctrine of Scripture is on any given issue. So why bother? It's desirable and it's possible. Thirdly, is it indispensable? Now, that's the hardest word I'm going to make you write down. Is it indispensable? I-N-D-I-S-P-E-N-S-A. I-N-D-I-S-P-E-N-S-A. You can pretty well heave a sigh now because everything else is easy from there on. But is it indispensable? In other words, can, you not do, can, can, you, can we not do without it? Do we really, really need it? Why would I ask that question? Because there are some people in in Christendom who would say, well, studying doctrine is intellectual, and intellectual is the opposite of spiritual. Now, where they get that, hint, not the Bible. Uh, Eastern mysticism, uh, Western laziness, (laughs) charismaticism has found thinking to be an uh, an enemy of their movement, really, in many cases. And so they say to think and be intellectual is... Is unspiritual, um, some think the Holy Spirit will just guide us as to what to think from moment to moment. Um, some think that it just isn't all that important. Uh, so that's why we ask, is it really indispensable? And the answer to that question is, what do you think? Evidently so. Let it be evidently so. because what does our Lord say as to the mission of the church in matthew twenty eight eighteen through twenty? The last words in that book makes them kind of portentous, wouldn't you say? In the Gospel of Matthew, these are the last things he says to end the book. So what does he say we're to be doing? And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's all my turf. It's all my territory. Therefore, because I own everything outright... Go and make disciples of all the nation. Now, what's a disciple? What's another word for a disciple? Please don't say follower. Please don't say follower. Student. Thank you. It's student. A learner. What does a student study? Teaching. What's another word for teaching? Doctrine. So, he says, go and make people who study doctrine out of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that shows we belong to Him, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So what Jesus said to do is to teach everything He taught. And that's just what the apostles did, and that's just what I seek to do, and every faithful pastor, of which there are many, 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 thank God, seeks to do. Teach what God says, teach everything Jesus says, and you'll find that everything Jesus says points you to everything else he says. What do I mean? I mean, he points back to the Old Testament and says, it'll never be violated. It'll, it all will have its fulfillment. And he points forward to the New Testament and says, I'll send my Spirit to guide you, you apostles, into all truth. So, Jesus' words take us to all of Scripture, and he says, it's our job to teach those words, which is to say, to teach what? To teach doctrine. The doctrine that comes from studying, synthesizing, and putting together what those words say. In other words, what we get when we assemble that is we get the faith once for all handed down to the saints. It's handed down by and in and through the word of God. John 8 verses 31 and 32 John 8, 31 and 32. I'll just read this to you. You've heard it many times. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, the mark of genuine discipleship, which is to say, genuine studenthood, is staying in his word, which is to say, in his teaching. So when you understand those two words, don't you see how much sense they make? The mark that you're a real student is you study what I teach. Well, that makes even more sense than you thought it was, and you you thought it made perfect sense already. But this is the mark of a disciple. He studies Jesus' teaching. He studies his doctrine. He continues in that. And only by doing that do we know the truth. And only by knowing the truth, this has to be the most abused verse in the Bible, most taken out of context, but only by knowing that truth are we set free. That's literally the definition of a disciple. Continuing in Jesus' word. Nobody is a disciple who doesn't continue in Jesus' word. Not me. Jesus says that. I do agree. Letter C. Why evidently so? Because, number one, this is how we commune with God. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. Please. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. So the beloved apostle, John, says, What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we've seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Us who? Us apostles. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. To what end? John, glad you asked, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. How do I commune with God? Ooh, ooh, I know the answer, some young Christianoid says. I go somewhere alone, empty my mind completely, and listen for the voice of God. That's how I commune with God. John says, wrong. If you want to commune with God, you've got to commune with us. What does that mean? Pray to dead apostles? No. What has he just talked about? What I'm writing right now. The very thing I'm writing to you. The testimony of God that God has taught us. I commune with God by the word of God. You may recall I said something similar to that just a few moments ago. Why is the Bible important? Because God meets us there. What does John say right here? We meet God there. Our communion with God is through the doctrine of Scripture, the writings of the apostles. That's how we have fellowship with God. That's our gateway. That's our contact point. That's our at Panera 2 o'clock Tuesday with God. So this is how we commune commune with God. Number two, this is how we grow. You're right near Hebrews. Go ahead and turn there. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he says, You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness. For he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What do we need? Well, we need to be experienced in the word of righteousness. We need to be accustomed to the word of righteousness, verse 13. How do we do that? Verse 14, practice, practice, practice. Spend time in the word. Give effort to learning the word. Train our senses. The the Greek word gymnazo, we get gymnasium from that word. Work out like an athlete. Repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. Instead of building muscle memory, though, you're building spirit memory. Soul memory of God's words. And so uh, his expectation is the same as Jude's, which is that all Christians will grow. Jude, Jude never even imagined somebody's going to say, wait, I don't want to contend earnestly. He figures Christians know we need to. This writer has found that his readers don't seem to know that they need to grow. And so he tells them. And in the next chapter, he tries to, 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 to scare the stupid out of them by saying that, you know, if you don't grow and produce fruit, good odds you're not even a believer. So how much does it matter? It matters a whole lot. So learning these parts and putting them together into the doctrine that they teach, that is the way we grow. And thirdly and finally of this, this is how we worship. Finally turn to Colossians 3, please. Short but very powerful. Let's take a look there together. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. This is a word, a verse that is often uh, misunderstood, and the misunderstanding is still good, it's just not good enough. When Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he's not just talking to me as an individual or you as an individual. Look in the context and you'll see that for for sure. But even more, you can just read on in the verse. Is he just talking to an individual? Well, for one thing, the word you is plural, so that's kind of a clue. I can't see it in English, but there it is. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. Uh, New Texas version. With all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with gratefulness in y'all's hearts to God. Now this is how we worship. Our worship is to be filled with and directed by the word of Christ richly. So again, one last time. What is his word? Is it a single word? Is it leaven? Is it... Uh, Virgin? No, it's the whole of his teachings studied, put together so we understand what he says about in this case, worship, which clearly most Christians have not done. They think worship is all about how we're made to, to feel by the style of music that's played. There's absolutely nothing to do with God's definition of worship. But it's about the Word of Christ. So it's what is to fuel every aspect of our corporate worship you may remember a sermon I taught where I actually took every part of our worship service and showed you how it was an attempt to honor something in scripture not just something that we found sociologically desirable or psychologically comforting uh, but it came from the word of God so let's wrap it all together doctrine teaches from scripture what the faith once for all handed down to the saints is how do we know that faith so that we even can contend for it We know it by studying the whole of Scripture. And we've seen it is desirable to do that. We should want to do it. It's possible to do it. We can do it. And it's necessary. It's indispensable. We must do it if we want to know God and if we want to grow in God. And uh, we can and we must... And it teaches us something also that's really very important today that you will run into many, many times. And if I can succeed in turning you onto this, you're going to see this again and again and again. You will see that people seem to think that Christianity is this vague, shapeless gas that has no edges and no particular form. All it takes to be a Christian is to say you're a Christian. And hey, presto, you're a Christian. Doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter what you say or how you what you do, and if anyone else says that's not Christian thinking. Oh boy, oh, you're a hater. Oh, you're a hater. You're an awful person. Uh, it, which is irony, you know. It's you can say that someone's awful for saying that what someone else said is awful. It's awful to say that that's awful. How awful of you. But it's not awful to say he's awful. That's okay. That's just being a good person but uh if you if you try to criticize the 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 christianity that is the professed christianity of someone who favors homosexuality, who favors abortion, who favors a raft of other things, government totalitarianism, uh, racialism, dividing uh, by hatred and bitterness and uh, class envy and all these things. And you say, well, that's not not what a Christian does. Oh no, how dare you do that? How dare you question the the Christianity of this person? Well, I, I guess then Christianity must be this shapeless gas, right? This this thing that has no particular form and no particular edges. Anything can be Christian. Everything can be Christian. But what have we just spent our entire time seeing? No, that's not true. God has expressed himself in words, in categories that we can put together and see what he says about abortion, what he says about homosexuality, what he says about governmental totalitarianism, what he says about racism and the relationships of people and a host of other issues. We can know what God says and doesn't say. We can see the edges to this thing thanks to Scripture. But if we're going to contend for this faith, we need to learn that. We need to know that because it is a fact that Scripture affirms certain things and Christians believe those things. And people who deny those things or who teach the opposite of those things are not Christians. Or at the very best, they're not walking consistently with their Christian faith and need to repent and need to be called to repent by... Somebody who has bothered with doctrine. And God calls us to be that person. God calls us to be that church. Why bother? We should want to. It's doable and it's essential. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, for its power, its clarity. We thank you for what we learn by it, for we learn it by it alone. Father, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will shine the light on some person, perhaps, who's come in today, not knowing you, but perhaps thinking that he knew you or wanting to know you. Father, by the Spirit's ministry, open that person's eyes to see how really to know you and bring that person fleeing to Jesus Christ to be saved and brought into your family. Or if somebody has been walking with you, but getting off the course, getting off the path, being persuaded by false teaching. Oh, Father, use this to call that person back to walking with you, to your glory and his or her own good. And all of us, Father, help us to grow and deepen in our living vital grasp of your word. And through our study of your word, Father, help us to find you and enjoy communion with you and all of the blessings that come from that the blessed walk, the happy walk of walking in the way of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.